0: We'll turn to Psalm 119, Psalm 119. Today we are looking at verses 29 through 32, Psalm 119, 29 to 32. And I hope that as we continue this walk through Psalm 119, you're being challenged and encouraged as we go, challenged in that we should be seeing the depths of God's law that we've not yet explored. This law of God applies to every area of life and we can all become more consistent than we already are in applying that law in our lives. And also encouraged in that we have this incredible resource that God has given to us. He's revealed himself to us in his law. It's the perfect guide for life. It's the standard that we need to measure everything by. And as we'll see today, it shows us what is good. Psalm 119, and let's look at verses 29 to 32. Just follow along as I read. Put false ways far from me, and graciously teach me your law. I have chosen the way of faithfulness. I set your rules before me. I cling to your testimonies, O Lord. Let me not put to shame. I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. Let's begin by taking a look at verse 29, put false ways far from me and graciously teach me your law. When we abandon God's law, we walk in false ways. That's because God's ways are the ways of truth and the way of falsehood is the way of Satan. Dan Estes comments on this, whatever deviates from the Lord's way is deceitful and false, but the instruction of the Lord will keep him on the right path. When I read this verse, I think about Christian in Pilgrim's Progress. As long as he stays on the path, he's right where he's supposed to be. He avoids much trouble. He gets closer to the goal where he's heading, but as soon as he wanders from the way, he finds trouble. The idea of a false way in this verse communicates something to us of the character of this way that he wants to avoid. Thomas Manton writes that we resemble Satan in nothing so much as in lying and we resemble God in nothing so much as in truth. Satan is the father of lies. So when we take a false way, we are walking his path. But walking in God's ways is the way of truth. And that's good for society. Listen to what God says in Zechariah chapter 8. He says, these are the things that you shall do. Speak the truth with one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another and love no false oath for all these things I hate, declares the Lord. He's describing the way that society should operate and it's not following false ways, it's following the truth. When a society follows God's laws, God promises blessing. On a practical level, Manton explains human society is mostly upheld by truth. Where there's no truth, there can be no trust. Where there's no trust... There can be no commerce. It makes men unfit to be trusted. Now, how do you get rid of false ways? How do you find the right way? The psalmist answers with, teach me your law. We need God to teach us his law. That's the right way for us to take. Spurgeon says, if the law be not in our hearts, the lie will enter. And then conversely, he says, the only way to expel the law is to accept the truth. So we stand desperately in need of being taught God's law so that we can avoid false ways and walk in the path that God wants. In verse 30 then, the psalmist says, I have chosen the way of faithfulness. I set your rules before me. So the way of faithfulness here is opposite to the false ways that we saw in verse 29. This is the way of truth, of sincerity, of integrity, faithfulness. Charles Bridges writes about this. He says, Only two ways lie before us for our choice the way of lying and the way of truth. God, by the light of his word, guides us into one. Satan, by his temptations, allures us into the other. And what the psalmist says here is both very simple. And it's profound. I I don't want you to miss this. I'm going to show you this principle from Jeremiah, and then I want you to see what the psalmist is saying here. So this is Jeremiah 6 that I'm reading from. It's an announcement of coming judgment on Jerusalem. And here's the message that we read for Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord, Stand by the roads and look, and ask for the ancient paths, where the good way is, and walk in it and find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. I set watchmen over you, saying, pay attention to the sound of the trumpet. But they said, we will not pay attention. Therefore, hear, O nations, and know, O congregation, what will happen to them. Hear, O earth, behold, I am bringing disaster upon this people, the fruit of their devices, because they have not paid attention to my words. And as for my law, they have rejected it. You can see here at the end that Jerusalem has rejected God's law and therefore judgment is coming. But notice what God's instructions were to them in verse 16. Stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it. So they were first supposed to investigate which is the good way. And then they are to walk in it. Find the good way and walk in it. Let me share with you how two different commentators explain this because I think they're both helpful. First, this is Matthew Henry and he's commenting on that phrase, I have set your rules before me. And he says, as he who learns to write lays his copy before him that he may write according to it, As the workman lays his model and platform before him, that he may do his work exactly. As we must have the word in our heart, by a habitual conformity to it, so we must have it in our eye, by an actual regard to it upon all occasions, that we may walk accurately and by rule. So, I've set your rules before me, they always need to be in our sight so that we walk the way that God has designed. Henry's comparing the law to a model or a a standard that we use to fashion our work after. We have to keep our eye on the model, on the blueprints, so that we follow the plan exactly. And here's how Charles Spurgeon explained the verse. He said, what he had chosen, he kept in mind, laying it out before his mind's eye. Men do not become holy by a careless wish. There must be study, consideration, deliberation, and earnest inquiry, or the way of truth will be missed. The commands of God must be set before us as the mark to aim at, the model to work by, the road to walk in. We're to reject the false way and instead choose the way of faithfulness. And having resolved to follow that way, We are to faithfully walk in it. And the means by which we accomplish that is to set God's law always before us. In verse 31 then, the psalmist says, I cling to your testimonies, O Lord, let me not be put to shame. The psalmist makes this connection between God's law and shame. If he clings to God's testimonies, then he will not be put to shame. Where does shame come from? Shame entered the world with sin. We read in Genesis 2 that when Adam and Eve were created, they were both naked and were not ashamed. But in Genesis 3, when they sinned against God, they became aware of their nakedness and they hid from the presence of the Lord in shame. In fact... Regarding this nakedness and shame, Thomas Manton makes an interesting suggestion. He says, shame is the striving of nature to hide the stain of our souls by sending out the blood into the face for a covering. See what he's saying? When you're ashamed, you blush. And Manton says that your blush is like a a visual reminder of your body. It's like it's attempting to create a covering for you. Well, the psalmist has asked God to help to keep him from the false way. He's chosen the way of faithfulness. He keeps God's law before him in order to keep to that path. And now we're seeing his resolve to stay there. He clings to God's testimonies and continuing on looking at that resolve. Then the psalmist has in verse 32, he says, I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. Enlarging the heart can be something general or something particular. Generally, it's what happens in conversion when the spirit acts on a man to give him a new heart, a soft heart, an enlarged heart, a a heart that is open to God's word. Specifically though, it can mean growing in grace. For a man who's already a believer, this is when the spirit of God is working on his heart to cause him to walk in his ways more closely, to follow God's laws. It's interesting to see that the psalmist says that he runs in the way of God's commandments. It's a steady, committed pursuing of this way. This speaks to perseverance in the way of God's law. And I really like how Thomas Manton comments on this. He says, we're not to esteem a river by its swelling and running over the banks after a mighty long and continued rain, but rather by its constant course. Nor are we to judge of a town by the the great concourse at a fair or a market. The town is not every day so filled. So neither are we to judge of God's assistance by those high tides of comfort or strength of gracious impulses, which in the days of spiritual bounty he is wont to give. If you are enabled to walk humbly with God, though you have not such heights of affection, you should be thankful so he's saying comparing it to a river the way you should think of the river is the way that the river normally runs sure when there's rains it might swell its bank and be a lot more impressive but the way that the river normally runs every day is the reality of that river same thing with a town when it swells up with some great event that's that's not a good picture of the greatness of the town you want to get the everyday picture of the way the town functions day after day Same is true for the Christian life, he's saying. We should be measuring ourselves by that day-to-day pursuing of holiness. That's what's in mind when the psalmist says that he runs after God's commandments. This is his, his daily pursuing of living according to God's word. So in these verses, the psalmist asks God to put false ways far from him and instead he chooses the way of faithfulness. Because he's determined to follow this way, he asks God to teach him his law and he says that he sets God's rules before him, he clings to God's testimonies, which will keep him from shame and he's resolved to run in the way of God's commands. You can just say, may we follow his example in doing that. Well, one of the things that we saw in these verses this morning was that the psalmist chooses the way of faithfulness, or what Jeremiah calls the good way. How does he know which way is good? Well, by studying God's law. And this leads us to our principle about God's law that we want to take some time to think about this morning. And the principle is simply this God's law shows us what is good. God's law shows us what is good. I'd like to talk for a little bit about the principle and then just finish by briefly looking at a case law this morning. So to say that God's law shows us what is good is to say that we don't naturally know what is good. Think about this for a moment. We all have a sense of right and wrong. We don't all agree on exactly what is right, or wrong. But we think something is right and something is wrong. Where does that sense come from? Why do we feel obligated to do certain things and not to do other things? Why do we feel that we ought to behave in a particular way? For the Christian, that sense is grounded in the fact that we're created by God. But for a moment, set that belief aside. Do atheists have a sense of right and wrong? Do they believe that there are certain things they ought to do and other things they ought not to do? Well, of course they do. But here's the thing, that sense of right and wrong that they have is inconsistent with what they say they believe. Atheism's been around a long time, but it became more of a viable kind of widespread cultural belief after Darwin published his theories of evolution. Rush Dooney observes that with Darwin, nature became blind, purposeless, and this created a moral crisis. What's the crisis? Well, here it is. How can an ethical ought a should, come from a biological is. In other words, in a materialist world, if the physical world is all there is, how does the material world dictate anything about morality? About what should or should not be? Those questions don't even make any sense in an evolutionary worldview. Where does the unbeliever get his sense of right and wrong? Well, it has to be self-determined. But if I determine that something is right, and you determine that the same thing is wrong, who's to say? Everything, all morality, all ethics, becomes completely subjective and relative. And ultimately, it just comes down to who has the power to enforce their view. If there's no outside standard, no transcendent God who gives us right and wrong, then moral standards are nothing other than just simple personal preference. And if that's the case, then you can't legitimately tell me what to do any more than I can tell you what to do. The reality is, this universal sense of right and wrong, of ought or should, presupposes a higher law or standard to which we're all subject. A lot of people want to try to locate that law in nature. So we have what's called natural law, and the idea is that this is the common morality that all humans share, simply from the light of nature. And one reason that Christians often suggest natural law is that it gives them a way to promote Judeo-Christian values without appealing to scripture. So that someone who rejects the Bible won't be able to simply dismiss natural law because it's derived from the Bible. Put more bluntly, it's a means of evading God's law as found in scripture, while still having some reference point beyond the individual. And it's important for me to point out too, natural law is not the same thing as natural revelation. And natural revelation is what Paul talks about in Romans one, the idea that God's invisible attributes can be seen just from the created world so that everyone is without excuse. And this shows, Paul says, that they have the work of the law written on their hearts and their conscience is testifying to them and they have conflicting thoughts that both accuse and excuse them. Paul explains that the reason for, for the way that this goes is that God has given them over to a depraved mind. So with that depraved mind, they set up their own perverted standard to live by. So Paul says, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So what Paul's is saying is this, everyone naturally knows enough of God's law through common grace to condemn them. But the natural knowledge of the law does not provide an alternate law structure to biblical law. Instead, what men do is they turn to their own standard. If they did follow true natural law, it would be identical to God's written law because God's law reveals his character and his character doesn't change and God wouldn't contradict himself. Here's a simple way to think about the limits of natural law. If natural law is an expression of nature, we have a problem. How can a fallen, sinful world reveal to us a good, righteous law? It can't. So natural law provides kind of a workable framework for a temporary time if, and only if, there's already common agreement in terms of worldview. Like if you share a religious worldview and then that lo- the law is built on that. But if that religious agreement disappears, natural law theory tumbles. It becomes useless. Here's an example. <clears throat> I went to the park yesterday during the Drag Queen Story Hour in Wadsworth partly so that my voice would be heard on the issue and partly because I wanted to hold a sign that had a Bible verse so that God's law would be at least seen and contemplated at the event. But um, I ended up having the opportunity to have several really good conversations with people who were there as attendees. So uh, we were on the other side of the police barricade, but we were both standing there and just able to talk. And you can pray for the people that I had conversations with. hopefully was able to plant some seeds for them to think about but in one of those conversations i was talking to to two guys and um, i was i was pressing them to consider the idea of where our standards come from where do our ideas of right and wrong come from and the one man said well morality is determined by society what the society determines is acceptable is acceptable And I responded by saying, here's the problem with that. And I pointed over to the neo-Nazi protesters and I said, they want to bring back the ideology that ruled Germany in the 1930s. That society agreed that hatred of the Jews and hatred of other people groups was a good and acceptable thing. That... Eliminating or exterminating those people was a good thing. Is that right? Because the society said so? See, there has to be a transcendent standard from outside of us. At our country's founding, we had that broad consensus. Almost everyone was Christian, at least in their worldview. There was broad agreement about Christian morals Joe Boot describes what happened, though. He says the emphatic shattering of the Christian consensus in the West came in the wake of Darwinism and naturalistic evolution. For how could an ethical oughtness arise from a self-generating and biological is? Consequently, he says, Christians who refuse to accept biblical law invariably try to salvage transcendence from the Darwinian abyss by an unconvincing appeal to pagan natural law theory as a basis for civil righteousness and social order. If you reject God's law as the standard, something else has to take its place. And after Darwin, since the world was seen as simply a material world, Where was that going to go? Where would you find the source of authority? Well, our culture has answered that with the state. The source of law has shifted to be the state. And so what the state says is what is law. And that will always and only be a disaster. Our original question here is, how do we know what is good? And we should note that there are different kinds of good, right? If I asked the question, what makes a hammer a good hammer? How would you answer? Well, if it accomplishes the purpose for which it was designed. That's called teleological goodness. It has to do with the goal or the end in mind. What's the thing supposed to accomplish? What makes a plumber a good plumber? Well, if he does good work, if he does honest and timely business, etc. But if someone's a good plumber, does that mean they're a good person? You can see why we have to say there are different kinds of goodness. If a good hammer serves its purpose well and a good plumber does good plumbing work, what would be the purpose for a human? What would make someone a good person? How would we measure that? Well, the Bible says that Our highest goal in everything that we do should be the glory of God. So a good person brings God glory. That's why, by the way, Romans 3 says we've all sinned and what does that look like? We fall short of the glory of God. See, falling short of the glory of God is sin because what we were designed to do was to glorify God. And if we fall short of that, then we're not doing what we were created to do. That's sin. So a good person brings God glory. And Jesus says that our top priority should be the kingdom of God. Seek first his righteousness. Seek first the kingdom of God. So a good person seeks the kingdom of God. But notice, these goals are God-centered, not man-centered. How do you know how to glorify God? Is it whatever you feel is glorifying to God? Well, of course not. God tells us how to glorify him by obeying his commands, keeping his law. So if we want to be the kind of people we're supposed to be, we must be people who obey God's law. We've seen the ways in which we cannot determine what is good, but God has not left us in the dark. He shows us what's good. Quite simply, God is good. He is pure goodness. So whatever is like God is good. Bonson explains, he says, the law of God is good for its author is good. The law is the transcript of God's holiness. Think about the opposite of good for a moment. What constitutes sin? We already said sin is falling short of the glory of God. John says it a different way. John says that Sin is lawlessness. He's really saying the same thing. Because if the law reveals the character of God, and you go against that law, if you're lawless, then you're violating God's character. You're falling short of glorifying him. Herman Bavinck writes, he says, the character of sin is that it does not rest until it has shaken off all law and can do anything it wills to do. It wants to be absolutely unruly and absurd. This would result, however, in completely dehumanizing people, in turning us into animals, since animals, after all, do not submit to moral laws, but live according to their instincts. God has designed us in his image. And we reduce ourselves to the level of animals when we don't follow his law. The law, though, should uphold justice. And justice is in accord with God's nature. He always does what's right. So his law embodies that. He gives us his law to live by. I like the way that Joel Beakey explains this. He says, God's unchanging moral nature is the foundation of all moral obligations. Furthermore, God is not bound by a standard outside of himself, but simply acts consistently with himself. God is righteousness. It's not like there's some standard out there called perfect goodness and God somehow measures up to that. No, God is the standard. He is good. He is righteous. He is just. And so don't miss the point. Apart from God, we can't possibly know what good is. Good is what is like God. And since God's law reveals his character, God's law is what reveals to us what is good. Because God doesn't change, his law doesn't change. If his law reveals his character and his character doesn't change, then his law doesn't change. And that means that God's law, rightly understood, is still binding on us today. This is why Calvin explains, he says, We must not imagine that the coming of Christ has freed us from the authority of the law. For it is the eternal rule of a devout and holy life and must therefore be as unchangeable as the justice of God, which it embraced, is constant and uniform. Let me bring in two more witnesses who will testify to this idea that God's law is what reveals to us what is good. First one I want us to listen to is Jesus. This is Matthew 19, verses 16 and 17. Behold, a man came up to him saying, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. So there we see Jesus tells us how to find what is good. He says that God is the only source of what is good. And so if you want to have life, you, you need to keep God's law because that's what is good. Now, we can't keep the law. We'll talk about that. We can't keep it in such a way as to merit eternal life. But as ones who have been granted graciously eternal life on the basis of what Christ has done, how is it that we live the kind of life we're supposed to live? We live it according to God's law. Paul says something similar in Romans chapter 7. He says, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. And when he writes to Timothy, he tells Timothy, we know that the law is good. So the answer to our question, how do we know what is good, is simple. God's law shows us what is good. And let me reiterate now something that we've said before. There is a difference between justification and sanctification. We cannot be justified by keeping the law because we can't keep it perfectly. So in the realm of justification, what the law does is it shows us that we have failed. So how is it that we could even be justified? By the work of Christ. Christ's death on the cross answers the penalty of the law on our behalf. And the righteousness of Christ is given to us by grace. That's the gospel, that's the good news. But the law is our pattern of sanctification. It teaches us how to live holy lives. Let me show you this difference from Ephesians chapter 2. And I'll start with reading verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Okay, that's justification. Saved by grace through faith, not saved by keeping the law, doing good works, saved by the righteousness that comes to us as a gift from God, the righteousness of Christ himself. And then, verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's sanctification good works prepared by God that we should walk in them how do we know which works are good works well they're the ones that obey the law how do we know which works are prepared for us by God it's the ones revealed by God to us in his law When we come to our case law example this morning, this may, again, seem a bit disconnected from what we've talked about, but the reason is I'm I'm simply using this to give you an example of how God's law reveals to us what is good. This is Leviticus 19, verses 35 and 36. You shall do no wrong in judgment, in measures of length or weight or quantity. You shall have just balances, Just weights, a just ephah and a just hin; Those are measurements. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. These verses come in the context of instructions on how the Israelites are to treat sojourners and foreigners in their land. They are supposed to love them as they love themselves. And God views their obedience to that principle as being representative of how Israel is showing love in general. Are they being obedient to what God has said? Are they loving their neighbor? Well, look at how they treat foreigners and sojourners. So when our verses show up, this is the concrete application of that law. What does love for neighbor, especially sojourners and foreigners, look like? It looks like equal weights and measures. And the reason, of course, Since the law reveals God's character, is that God Himself is perfectly just, so we should be just too. God measures righteously, so should we. And by the way, this is why the symbol for justice in our culture, Lady Justice, is holding scales. She's measuring with equal weights she's blindfolded to indicate that she's not favoring anyone based on, for instance, if they're a foreigner or not. Another twist on this idea is Paul Robert's painting, Justice Lifts the Nations. It's hanging in a court building in Lausanne, Switzerland. Here, Lady Justice is not blindfolded, but there's a reason for that. Remember, the sword is given to the state. They have the power of the sword. And where is Lady Justice's sword pointed? It's pointed directly at an open Bible, open to the law of God. So the law of God is dictating for Lady Justice what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is evil. The opposite language is used to describe injustice. Governments who mistreat people are said to use false weights and measures in the Bible. When the handwriting appeared on the wall in Babylon to announce God's judgment on King Belshazzar, Daniel interpreted what was written and he said, God has numbered your kingdom and finished it. You have been weighed in the balances and found lacking. Your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. God weighed King Belshazzar in the balances of justice and he was found lacking. We still use that language of measurement today to talk about what's good and right. We balance our checkbook. We weigh the potential consequences of an action. We ask if someone gave enough weight to a particular factor in their decision. We make sure that we have checks and balances in our political system. We make judgment calls. And we're, if we're wondering if something is legit, we might ask, is this on the level Well, this case law in Leviticus 19 is really representative of any kind of injustice. It's a concrete demonstration of how God's people should be just and do what is right. But it doesn't apply only to individuals or even to businesses. This law also applies to the civil government. David Chilton points out that throughout the Bible, money is spoken of by weight, Gold and silver are measured by weight, measured on scales that should be just and honest. The gold and silver, the money, is a commodity itself. It's not just a form of currency. The gold and silver itself is a commodity, a valuable thing. Now, I want to give you a kind of lengthy quote because I can't say it any better than how David Chilton explains this. This is a great example of how God's law applies practically to every area of life. And as I read this, and by the way, this is incredibly timely and relevant, think about how much better it would be if our country actually followed this law. Okay, here we go. He writes dishonest governments have always hated this fact. He's referring to the fact that, for instance, gold and silver money is a commodity. Dishonest governments have always hated this fact because it prevents them from controlling money in society. Hard money is a strict limitation on a government's ability to grow beyond biblical boundaries. For this reason, governments have sought to have a monopoly as the sole suppliers and regulators of currency. This enables government to go into the counterfeiting business, whereby it can debase the currency, by mixing the honest gold or silver with dross and create as much money as it needs. This has happened again and again in history. It is forbidden by the law in Leviticus 19, the verses that we read, and it gives several other references there, and the prophets, gives them some references. This is an absolute biblical prohibition against inflation which is a dishonest increase in the supply of money. Counterfeiting is condemned by scripture, no matter whether it is done by individuals or governments. Inflating the currency is theft, for it reduces the wealth of everyone who does not have access to the new money. Prices rise in response to the addition of new currency, and those who are last in getting the newly created money inevitably lose. Relevant, right? God's law is incredibly practical. How do we know what is good? God reveals it in his law. His law is good because it reveals God's character and God is good. Why equal weights and measures? Because God is just and we should be like him. So God's law shows us what is good. Now remember what we saw from the psalmist this morning in verses 29 to 32. He asked God to put false ways far from him, and instead he chooses the way of faithfulness. What does that look like in relation to this case law? It looks like equal weights and measures. No rigged weights, no injustice. And because he's determined to follow this way, he asks God to teach him his law, and he says that he sets God's rules before him. He clings to God's testimonies, which will keep him from shame. And he resolves to run in the way of God's commands. And this should be true of us too. How do we live holy lives? By learning God's law and running in it. Let's be people who are like God because we follow his law. Lord, as we've considered these verses this morning, again, the psalmist just gives us so much to think about regarding your law. We want to be people who investigate what is good, that we turn to your law and we learn it. We learn what is good. And not only that, but we walk in it, we run in that way. That that would be what characterizes us on a daily basis, in every part of our lives. May we be people who are faithful to you and your law. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.